the anchorages in the Bahamas, you would come back from a hot dog roast on the beach in your dinghy, and by the light of the stars, you would see starfish on the bottom in 20 foot of water. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 46, Jim Parsons, The Cruising Life. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. We have a fun show today with a very experienced sailor, Jim Parsons. Jim had a career in the Navy, and after leaving the Navy and having a civilian career for a few years, he took up cruising, and today he is here to tell us all about cruising and sailing. So, Jim, welcome to the program. Thank you, Curtis. Glad to be here. So, Jim cruised with his wife, Kay, for six years. They tried a variety of boats. They had a 30-foot Catalina. They had a 43-foot Endeavor 43, a catch. They did the intercoastal waterways up the east coast of the United States, out to the Bahamas, and they took some trips to some other places. Jim, take a few minutes to tell our listeners about yourself and about cruising. Well, you might say we got into this, um, that this idea germinated back in the mid-60s with me, uh, being a young petty officer in the Navy making a whole $220 a month, I needed some recreation that didn't cost me an arm and a leg. So a shipmate of mine and I took uh, sailing lessons at Hickam Air Force Base in Hawaii and uh, got qualified to, to sail there, two rental boats over there. Then we would sit around in the evening and, uh, and dream about buying a 50-foot Columbia and going off cruising to Tahiti. Of course, that became very impractical, <laughs> if nothing else but for money. We stayed out of it for years and years. We sailed off and on with various people um, just, you know, for day sales and stuff like that. And then we got so wrapped up in winter sports when we were living in Connecticut that we said, you know what, we're neglecting summers. Let's find something more fun to do in the summer. That started uh, the sailboat thing. We got a little 22-foot O'Day, and I don't think we had that much more than a year, and we decided it was too small. So we went to the 30-foot Catalina. Uh, after we sailed that of about five years, six years, I don't remember anymore exactly, but I'm getting to the end of my 15-year civilian career, and I just had this thing, I want to be free. I want to sail away and get rid of all the responsibilities that oh, I've yeah. been plagued with for the last 38 years in both careers. Then we met people who were cruising full-time, and then the interest really sparked, and the whole thing kind of gelled and took a little talking to Kay to convince her that we ought to give up home and hearth and throw off the lines and sail away. So um, we started doing our homework, looking for boats, and um, ended up coming to Florida, buying an Endeavor 43, and one of the reasons the last two boats' names were serendipity, uh, just to digress a bit, was the, uh, A, we found them both by chance, but B, you get known by your boat name out there. 
people wouldn't know Curtis Winville, but they would know your boat name, you know. So you became right. known as Gavilta Fish or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> that's the serendipity guy. Yeah, so that's about it. So we uh, sold everything we owned and um, and threw off the, the line, took off. After about a year and a half of rebuilding the boat, uh, which I would recommend people do is get to know your boat pick the right boat over it yourself know what's in there uh it takes a lot of work um but it's cruising is something you really got to want to do it's um there's inconveniences and the inconveniences are the things that you take for granted in your house you turn on the water and it comes on um on a boat you only have a certain capacity even with a water maker you can still run out uh how do you get your mail? How do you get paid? Um, how do you communicate with family? Now, we did this, remember, before the days when the Internet and the cell phones were really big. So yeah. um, we always say that probably the greatest uh, help to us was when cell phones came along and got very popular. Instead of trying to reach 500 miles ahead on a single sideband radio and hope somebody would communicate with you for one reason or another. You could pick up the phone and call. That was a big help. So that's how we got into it. You first cruised, I guess, when you when you went cruising full-time. Was that on that 30-foot Catalina? Uh, no, we did just weekends. and Well, it depends what you call cruising. It's sailing and weekend sailing and two-week vacations we would do on the 30-foot Catalina, but when we took off where this was our home, we sold everything. We sold houses, cars, uh, the whole nine yards. That was our house. We didn't have anything else. We put a few keepsakes in storage, uh, but other than that, we had nothing. We got rid of the furniture. I mean, you name it. <laughs> we cleaned the house out. Oh, that has to be liberating, huh? Uh, it was probably the hardest job of going cruising, was getting rid of all that stuff. Wow. I, mean, I had one point where my neighbor said, if I see you coming across this yard with something in your hand, I'm going to shoot you. <laughs> <laughs> and so then you're able to cruise full time for about six years. Yes, exactly. Well, tell us what that was like. What is the lifestyle of a cruiser when, you, when you're really there full time? You don't even have a house. You don't have the cars. Like you said, this was your life. So what was that? Well, to... Backtrack a little bit. You do have cars in the form of dinghies. You know, we were fortunate we had two, uh, his and hers. Uh, so that would get us from the boat to shore. Because we'd anchor out a lot. It was cheaper. The first trip down the waterway was really the most exciting because we had a six-foot draft and a 60-foot air draft that we had to be concerned about in uh, high or low tides, depending on which draft you were worried about the most. And the waterway shoals quite a bit, so kind of common sense reading charts, and of course I had a lot of that in the Navy, and um, I've always enjoyed it. Common sense prevailed. You would pull into an anchorage, you would talk to people, you would say, hey, i got to go through, say, Ponce Inlet the next day, or say, Hellgate up in New York. You know, what sort of advice would you give me? So just common sense of looking ahead at where you got to go to tomorrow and planning for it, uh, and it worked out very well, you know. But there's an old saying on the waterway, there are people who have been aground and those who are going to go aground. There are, there are no others. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So did you find yourself under sail quite a bit, or were you motoring a lot of that way? 
Uh, we did a lot of motoring and motor sailing. Actually, the the days of pure blissful sailing, like they portray in the movies and stuff, uh, weren't that many. If because we stayed in the waterway. Now, if we would have went outside and come down the ocean, it would have been a different story. But I stood too many mid watches, meaning from uh, midnight till four in the morning in the Navy, and I didn't want to do that anymore. You know, I wanted to be at a quiet anchorage or at a dock and uh, spend a quiet evening and get a good night's sleep and get up early and go in the morning. So the pure sailing part of it, uh, I think a lot of people would be disappointed in uh, if you were really a diehard sailor. You need the open sea for that. Yeah, really and do. There are bays in the waterway and uh, places like Albemarle Sound that you can sail across. Uh, but sailing in the waterway is, unless the wind's directly behind you to where you can run with a head sole out, um, it becomes pretty precarious. And sailing through bridges is illegal. I mean, through, you know, draw bridges and stuff like that. So right. you have to turn on that dirty-smelling D-sail <laughs> and proceed from there. Yeah, I've never heard of that sail on a boat till just then. You know, I've heard of all the mainsails and the jinnies and the jibs and the foresails, and, but never the D-sail. <laughs> well, they say the two best times in a sailor's life when he turns off that stinky, noisy D-sail, and uh, the other time is when he turns that sweet-sounding son-of-a-gun on when he needs it in a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah, coming in and out of, um, you know, breakwaters and inlets and stuff. Um, well, we learned to do it always having a sail up because we have lost power going out of, an, you know, Barnegan Inlet one time, and uh, that gets a little bit precarious. But... Ooh, it could be a little dicey. So what about the people you meet along the way? You said people got to know you by the name of your boat, but it sounds like you probably made a lot of friends. Well, one of the great misconceptions that I had of going into this thing in the same way with Kay, we thought we would be out there and there would be nothing but peace and quiet, no people around. Well, nothing could be farther from the truth. The intercoastal waterway in the East Coast is like I-95. <laughs> I remember about our third or fourth year, we... Um, went 700 miles without pulling into an anchorage or a marina where we didn't know somebody. Wow. So you actually did uh, get quite a lot of community along the way then. Oh, yeah. The potluck dinners and uh, the libations <laughs> were <laughs> just part of the game. Sounds fun. Did you enjoy meeting all those people? Yeah, I did because uh, everybody had something in common, which is kind of interesting because after we got out of the sailing game, you find out, the only thing you really had in common with a lot of these people was being liveaboard boaters. And you didn't have much else. Once you're done with it, those people fade away very quickly. We still keep in touch with a few, but very few. Well, hey, why would you encourage people to try cruising? Well, I think, it, and my wife would agree, you know, we think it's the best thing we ever did. We just had some wonderful times. I mean, you would be back in an anchorage on the Waccamaw River, and when the sun went down, you could not see a light anywhere. There was no visible light of show of human habitation anywhere in the world. All you had was the stars. The anchorages in the Bahamas, you would come back from a hot dog roast on the beach in your dinghy, and by the light of the stars, you would see starfish on the bottom in 20 foot of water mm. just by the light of the stars. I mean, 
And then in times like down in Spanish Key, you know, you'd get the phosphorescence that would bloom. And uh, that was a sight to behold, you know. There's nothing like getting up in the middle of the night and going to the john, and when you flush, the little sparkles start around it. <laughs> <laughs> so my understanding is that these are a type of plankton that give off bioluminescence whenever they get agitated, and they're in, in the water. So I guess if you're sailing at night, you would see them in the wake or when you're flushing the john, right? Well, I can't answer that. I'm not qualified. To, I'm not a marine biologist. I do know that the time we saw the most of them, we were at anchor quietly. Hmm, interesting. So it's just like fireflies in the water, sort of. Exactly. What a neat thing to see. So you had some great experiences. It sounds like you met some really neat people along the way and had a good social life as well as some nice quiet times on the boat. Oh, he did. That was one thing wonderful about it. Once, you, If you got too tired of the social life, all you had to do was pick up your anchor, set sail for a different island. You know, A lot of people are probably not aware of it, but the, the, the Bahamas have 100,000 square miles of water and 700 islands. Mm. I mean, that's just a lot of cruising territory, albeit it's shallow. You've got to mind your P's and Q's if you're carrying much of a draft like we did. We were pushing six feet. But, again, common sense, reading the charts, reading the water, and uh, and do a little scouting beforehand. I found somebody who had been down that way or up that way or whatever the case was. So would you advise someone to consider a, a catamaran or a trimaran if they wanted to be around waters like that? Um, there are certainly advantages to the catamarans, we knew a number of people who had them, obviously much shallower draft, much faster sailing. What, there are some downsides, like everything else in this life, that there's a, it's a two-edged sword. The downsides are because your living space is above the waterline, when you get up where it's colder, the cold air is underneath, chilling the floor uh, all around you. They're just a darn cold boat. Mm. The next thing you got to consider is a lot of marinas want to charge you double because you're so wide that you're taking up clips. And the third thing is finding a place to haul out your boat when you've got to put new bottom paint on it. Only uh, not that many people are equipped. What are you thinking about? If you're thinking about your future, think about Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado. Think a beautiful mountain campus where hiking, biking, kayaking, and snow riding are right outside your door. Think a friendly community buzzing with music, arts, events, and sports. Think faculty mentors, real research, and professional experiences that prepare you to both make a living and make a life. If you think college should be an adventure, think Fort Lewis College. See for yourself at fortlewis.edu. Do you love mountains? You are not alone. Jerry Roach is well known for his extraordinary and detailed guidebook, Colorado 14ers. But did you know that Jerry has written 15 books, including guidebooks to 13ers, Indian Peaks, Rocky Mountain National Park, and more? But he has also written narratives about a lifetime of mountaineering full of Jerry's insights and humor. If you like adventure, then these books are for you. 
Jerry Roach's books can be purchased at his website, summitsite.com. That's S-U-M-M-I-T-S-I-G-H-T dot com, as well as on Amazon and in bookstores near you. Tell us a story of a, a, an amazing experience that really hooked you on the sport. Well, I told you that being hooked on a sport was a long, drawn-out process before it came to total fruition. Amazing experience. I can't think of... I mean, we had some scary experiences like being chased across Charleston Harbor with two water spouts on our tail. We had um, storms in the middle of the night where people didn't set their anchor properly and uh, come dragging down through the anchorage and trip jewelers and the next thing you know you're blown over against the bank oh no and you've got tangled anchor lines and everything else oh yes 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 i'm a preparer and a planner and um, i do believe you divert or mitigate a lot of potential problems by you know what they call the three p's you know prior proper planning and uh, mm. Keep everything ship-shaped, keep things stowed away and tied down when you're not using them because you never know what the weather's going to do in the middle of the night. And there's nothing like, you know, waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning and have to scramble around on a dark deck trying to reset an anchor. Mm, yeah. Well, talk a little bit about that. People that are considering cruising as, as a lifestyle, what about the storms and trying to get through a night without waking up five times to make sure you're not drifting? Um... Well, I don't know how well versed you are in um, piloting, uh, but if you have a hand-bearing compass, or better yet, a pair of binoculars with a compass in it, just about most mariners know that when you set your anchor, and I'd like to go back to anchoring in a second, but when you set your anchor and you feel that it's all settled in and you're lying where you're going to be, well, you take a bearing. Maybe it's on the guy's dock with a light on it and then come as close to 180 out and get something on the other shore and take a bearing on it, and you write them down. So the first thing you do uh, when you wake up, because you become in tune with your boat, any little noise, a bilge pump going on, um, you know, you can feel it when the wind shifts. It'll wake you up. I mean, that's your home. You can't just park it out there for the weekend and come back Monday and fix it. You live there. But the first thing you check is those bearings. You know, wait a minute. Is that, does that dock with the light on it have the same bearing that it did last night? And how about the other one on the opposite shore? Does it have the same bearing? Um, so those are the first things you check. But now, going back to anchoring, I would say probably the biggest factor in learning to cruise is I cannot say enough about anchoring. Learn that like your life depended on it at night. Yeah, it might. Very very well said. I remember uh, renting a, chartering a, uh, a 44-foot sloop down in the Virgin Islands, and you have to write a resume in order to be able to take this boat, then they give you uh, that gives you provisional qualifications. Well, they came back to me and they said you didn't say enough on anchoring. Well, fortunately, I just read Don Bamford's book on anchoring and was able to write up about a three-quarter page dissertation, you know, on the the art 
but anchoring in the proper anchor, the proper road, and the proper technique of how to set it. You know, the greatest thing in a sailor's life is waking up in the middle of the night and being gazing on at the same real estate you <laughs> was there when you went to bed. You know, it's an awful wonderful feeling. Give us a sample of of what this anchoring is about. Um, if you anchor properly, is it uncommon that you pull anchor? Uh, yes. I used a 45-pound CQR, which is a plow anchor with an articulating shank. So when the wind changed, the shank would move and not the anchor itself. Mm, okay. The other thing is we I used an all-chain road. Um, so the, the secret of anchoring is that anchor hooks in a horizontal attitude to the bottom. If you lift up on that road like in a heavy storm and uh, you've got to get out of that mode and there's several ways you can do it some people call them a sentinel some people call them a kellet but it is nothing but a weight that you run down your anchor road so that that weight sets on the bottom so it acts kind of like the old-fashioned screen door on a, or garden gate thing with a, a weight hanging from it when you open the thing it pulls the weight up and uh, when you uh, let it go, the weight pulls the cord back down. But, uh, yeah, studying anchoring is a big thing. Kay and I would sit there, and when people did drag and got in trouble, we would always watch to see what type of anchor came up when they, when they retrieved it. And in almost all cases, the anchors that tripped out the most were the Danforth and the Bruce. So we were very happy with the the CQR, as it was called, the plow anchor. Now, there was one exception to that up in the Chesapeake. The Chesapeake is a very soft, muddy bottom. And when you ease your anchor down to the bottom and then start falling back and paying out road to get your uh, scope out. And by the way, we always tried to anchor to storm scope. I mean, a real short scope would be maybe three or four to one in other words three or four times the water depth is how much road you want out uh storms go probably seven to ten and i tried to never anchor with less than seven seven times the depth of the water out and this is so the forces are almost horizontal on the anchor there's not much vertical pulling straight up that way that is the key and then of course in the bahamas the water is so clear when the wind would get to blowing over there I had the luxury of getting my snorkel and stuff and going down and swimming around the anchorage looking at people's anchors and how they were riding. And uh, that was a good lesson to learn. But I would say that in a very high percentage of the time, like a Danforth anchor that you're probably familiar with, you know, the, the little two-fluke thing? Yep. With the non-articulating arm that just moves up and down. I would say that at a very, very high percentage of the time, that anchor is usually hooked in there by one fluke or the other. So you can quickly see to where an abrupt wind change or a gust would trip that anchor out of the bottom. Sure. And then you got to pay attention to that because there were some places where we could not set an anchor. The bottom in the Bahamas, some places, what pure limestone or marl as it's called, and you could not get an anchor down through that, no matter how hard you tried. In other places, the sand would only be eight inches deep, and you would put your anchor down. But after those eight inches, you were into limestone again. You'd never get a good set. You just really had to 
pay attention. I always put the anchor down and pulled it up. I had a windlass because I had all that chain and Kay did the driving. Well, we had hand signals worked out because some people don't. They got to yell at each other. And that used to be one of the most <laughs> funny things that, um, matter of fact, there was even a song down in the Bahamas about it, you know, about doing the anchor dance. And it is funny, but I don't know why men insist that they got to drive the boat and put the weaker sex on the heavy anchor. It didn't, never made sense to us. <laughs> and the way that sound travels over water, you can hear everything they're saying, all the frustrations. Oh, yeah, else. and you're pretty lucky you didn't have children aboard because some of it wasn't very nice. <laughs> well, share with us a time that things did not go right. Um, we think these stories really help people because they can learn from your experiences. So what do you have for us? Well, I mean, gosh, um, there's so many things that can go wrong on a boat because you got a lot of complicated equipment on there. Oh, you'd be going up the St. John's River, and uh, I remember one incident, and and I don't know whether you're familiar with what a row-row is, but it's a no. roll-on, roll-off ship that carries cars back and forth, you know, mostly right. Korea, Japan, et cetera. But they're huge, and um, we looked up, and here comes a Roro around the bend, and about that time, the um, belt on my raw water pump <laughs> decided to quit, and uh, so that's hurry over to the side and get your anchor down uh, away out of traffic and get down there and put a new belt on. So your your raw water pump is what kept the engine cool. Exactly. You're taking um, whatever water that you're sending in, you're pumping it through the engine. So this is a situation where you've got a really big ship coming around the corner and you've lost your ability to motor. Well, as I say, you know, be prepared to get that sail up in a hurry and know which way the wind is. You really got to pay attention to a lot of things. You know, it's kind of same thing with riding a motorcycle. You know, what do they say? You know, be aware of your surroundings at all times. And, um, uh, just little things like that. Always know the state of the tide. And a lot of people confuse tide and current. Current is caused by the tide. So that you may look at a spot and say, well, it's high tide. Uh, we have one here where we live in Florida where the difference between high tide and when the current stops running is about four hours. Wow. So you got to kind of really pay attention to that sort of thing. But there are publications available. And now... That was when we were doing it. Now a lot of the chart plotters, the electronic chart plotters and stuff that people use, um, the tides are already there. Describe that water spout story for us. Why don't you take that one just from beginning to end, Jim? It sounds like a real good one. Well, obviously there's storms and you have your eye on them. And we're coming across Charleston Harbor, coming north to where we're heading in to, back into the ditch part of the intercoastal waterway. The intercoastal waterway, to back up a little bit, Sure, a lot of people know, maybe a lot of don't, but it's nothing but a whole bunch of bodies of water connected uh, by canals, etc. They use natural rivers as much as possible. They use bays, but that's the intercoastal waterway. But anyway, we're proceeding across Charleston Harbor, and it's really stormy out. And uh, that's another factor about, you know, you're sailing around here and with a lightning rod stuck up in the air. That's oh, awful wow. exciting at times. <laughs> but we look over, and here come these water spouts. And um, we had just entered the, the waterway portion of it. Basically, there's no room to maneuver. <laughs> if this 
us. We have nowhere to go. Realized we didn't have shoes on. And I said, if they hit us, we're going to be pushed ashore and there's nothing over there but oyster beds. And we we better have shoes on or we're going to look like we've walked through a line of 10 with a pork chop jacket on by the time we get out of here. You know? Fortunately, it missed us. Again, we weren't prepared. We didn't have shoes in the cockpit until Kay had to run below and grab some. And then right ahead of us is a bridge that if it didn't start blowing, we're liable to end up, um, you know, a thort ships to the Ben Sawyer Bridge, <laughs> so it got a little it got a little tight out for a while. But that's really and truly it wasn't. It turned out to be not a big deal. It just you know you you get a little bit of a quick heartbeat out of it for a while, then it passes. Well, tell me what what percent of cruising do you feel like involves that kind of an experience where you've got the crazy weather, the unpredictable things are happening, and you really have to be on your toes? Um, actually, very little. Very little. Number one, with modern technology, we had WeatherFax modulator that would pump the WeatherFax into our laptop from the single sideband radio so we could get static printouts every four hours from NOAA. Why do you want to go out in that if it's going to be snotty, you know? So you just stay home. Common sense, again, don't be out there just playing and don't get yourself in that situation, you know? Because it's expensive when you start tearing up things. We had a, now it brings to mind back in those days before 911, we used to be able to go to the naval bases and use their marinas. And we were at the marina in subbase New London, and here comes a hurricane. Well, I got Kay off the boat and sent her to one of our old neighbors because we used to live up there. And then I got a guy to help me to take the boat up the river in a heck of a hurry. And I got it tied down as quickly as I possibly could and as good as I could um, and rode out the storm aboard the boat. And we had some damage. I mean, nothing major, you know, a radio antenna, a few other things that got tore up. Um, again, sounded exciting, and it was exciting during the time, but um, and it, what we couldn't avoid it. You know, we couldn't outsail this storm. If you were a ship at sea, you could sail to the least dangerous semicircle like they do. In other words, the, if the storm's going northeast, you want to be going southwest. Simple as that, because this thing is um, right. is rotating counterclockwise, so you want to be able to sail away from its forward motion and its motion of rotation. Yeah, probably more things will come to mind. Um, I can remember we were docked very safely over in West End, Grand Bahama once, and, I mean, the storm was really raging, and I saw these boats coming or heard him, I guess, on the VHF radio. So I ran out to the breakwater with a handheld VHF in my hand and warned them about trying to come in that inlet because the waves were coming across there at about a 45-degree angle, and there was no room for them. And a mm. sailboat in particular, for its size, is well underpowered because I even saw a 50-foot Hatteras you know, get pushed sideways in there dangerously close to really wrecking it Uh, so i told these people where to go and uh, i'll never forget this woman comes out of this dinghy a few hours later after they got all anchored down and she had thrown up all over herself she was embarrassed beyond uh, beyond belief but uh, well tell us a funny story (laughs) well i remember one time k 
Kay and I were having dinner, and you always keep your VHF radio on. It's like today's cell phone. You always have it with you. We are anchored up in, uh, I believe it was Georgia, and we hear this mayday, mayday, mayday coming over the VHF on Channel 16. And pretty soon the Coast Guard comes on and they says, oh, Captain, what's the nature of your distress? And he says, something stuck to my boat. What? And you could tell it was a young, young man on the radio for the Coast Guard. And the, he says, well, what is your position, Captain? And he says, well, I can see an island. <laughs> <laughs> and back behind me is another island. And there's a bunch of trees over here. And uh, finally, the chief of the watch or a, one of, a senior petty officer or something jumped in and took over the radio. And he says, Captain, uh, do you have a GPS aboard? And he says, yeah, I do. He says, is it on? He says, no. He says, would you turn it on? And as soon as, you know, it settles out and picks up the satellites, would you give me your Latin long? So that went on. And pretty soon he says, well, Captain, you have a fathometer board. He says, I do. He says, is it on? He says, no. He says, would you turn it on? <laughs> so evidently the guy turned it on. And he says, uh, what is the water depth there, Captain? And then he says, you know, it's four feet. And he says, uh, what is the uh, draft of your vessel? He says, five feet. And he says, well, I think I know what the problem is. <laughs> Wow. So I think that story tells us that there's some value in getting a little bit of knowledge and experience before you go out. Uh, I would say you can't know too much. On the other hand, you could you could obsess too much with it that it would scare you. This episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast is brought to you by 180TAC.com. 180TAC manufactures premier backpacking and emergency products. Whether you need a backpacking stove for your week-long trek on the trail or an emergency stove for your bug-out bag, we have the tools you need. Visit www.180tack.com. Enjoy something wild next winter. Enjoy a dog sledding vacation with Wintergreen Dog Sled Lodge in the beautiful Boundary Waters Wilderness near Ely, Minnesota. For over 30 years, Wintergreen has provided lodge-to-lodge dog sled vacation packages and dog sled camping adventures for people of all ages. No experience needed. Warm clothing and boots are provided. Mush your own team of Wintergreen's handsome and friendly Eskimo dogs on scenic Northwoods trails, accompanied by Wintergreen's expert guides. You'll be in good hands with Wintergreen. National Geographic has rated it best in the business. Visit dogsledding.com for details. Just like everything else you do in life, uh, if it's important to you, you know, do your homework. There's great uh, captain's courses out there. You don't have to take the test and get a captain's license. I remember one in particular, a gentleman by the name of Bud Gonder did this course. Now, usually, uh, you know, home study courses uh, can be some kind of boring, but this guy, he was delightful. I mean, he would throw some some quirks in there and uh 
I remember one where he gave you, he says, okay, you're leaving New London Harbor on at 12 knots on a course of such and such. At what time will you see Montauk Light? Well, hey, time, distance, and speed. That's a simple one, right? <laughs> well, if you did that, what he did was run you right into a light obscurity zone. You couldn't see the light because of Fisher's Island. Oh, okay. <laughs> so everybody got the question wrong. And in the book, he says, well, okay, you can be mad at me if you want to, but the Coast Guard's going to do it to you. <laughs> but he really made the course interesting. That's one I would really recommend. There may be better ones out there now. But that brings me to another thing. I think that one needs to know enough about the subject to where you must be aware of the fact that electronic systems fail. Oh, yeah. Back when we were sailing in the Bahamas, I mean, to the Bahamas and back, you didn't need GPS in the intercoastal waterway. (laughs) You know, you just went from buoy to buoy, you know, and watched the chart. But the government had what they called selective availability, which they would turn the GPS on for a while and they'd turn it off at their choosing Mm. because they were afraid an enemy could stick a missile in on that, you know, on that position and uh, do some bad things. So you had to always ask yourself out there, um, is this selective availability on or off, you know, when you were doing it? And I, I think those days are gone, but the things can still fail. We always carry two, one plus a backup. And I was a backup, just a backup freak. I'm very, very cautious and conservative. And, you know, I lay awake at night thinking, okay, what if this happens? What's my what's my options, right? You always have your plan B. Yeah, and I always tried to have that and, and still do. I do it in my house. I do it in my vehicles. And just plan ahead, you know, PPP, prior proper planning. You know, one of the questions that we get asked a lot, pirates were always get asked, what about the pirates, you know, down in the islands? And uh, those instances get blown up way out of proportion, you know, once the press gets a hold of them and stuff like that. I mean, they're so few and far between. And again, common sense. You know, I would not recommend taking a slow sailboat off of the coast of Somalia. Right. <laughs> Probably it's just not a good idea, you know. Well, what about the around the Bahamas or down in the Caribbean? Are, are there uh, areas there that should be avoided too? There was a lot of drug running uh, going on. Uh, just about a lot of those little, little islands had airfields, but... Uh, I remember Kay asking a guy down in, or a lady down in one of the Keys one day, you know, here's this boat with like three 200 outboards on it and painted gray. And she says, is that a police boat? And she, well, she says, you might say so, ma'am, because the police are always looking for it. <laughs> <laughs> I remember we uh, saw that boat come in one night and uh, we see uh, pull up to a trawler. Big one, not a private trawler, but, uh, you know, more of a commercial vessel. And you could see all the little locals coming around, both walking and riding some sort of water conveyance. And uh, we said, aha, this is, we're going down inside the boat and keep a low profile. (laughs) (laughs) Don't ask for trouble, you know. Oh, yeah. I think that anything that people are unfamiliar with um, seems a little bit scary because the unknown is you know, unknown, right? And 
what you're telling us is you get out there and you've met a, a, a ton of great people. And every now and then there might be something on the periphery that you pick up on, but you didn't feel like you were being threatened in any way. No, not at all. In the Bahamas, now I assume it's still pretty much this day. You know, as many times as we've been to the Bahamas, we've never been to Nassau and do not intend going either. Mm. Um, Freeport's as busy a town I wanted to see, but out in the out islands, in the Abacos, Exumas, and places like that, I kind of look at those like uh, counties or states within the country. But the people out there, I remember pulling in the with a dinghy one day and I always locked my dinghy up uh, when I came ashore and I locked it to the boat when I went to bed at night and of course locked the engine to the dinghy but I remember pulling in and there's a behind standing there and I got out to the cable an old piece of rigging that I was using and I was locking up my dinghy and I could see the guy look at me like was almost disgust and I could see it in his eyes you know we don't do that kind of stuff here I would say when we were there, Curtis, particularly down island in these little islands, you wouldn't even have had to lock your boat. Many people didn't. You know, the, the people were so honest, very religious. Um, not only that, but they're living on a small island. And if I um, did, you mention that you came from a small town. Oh yeah. Well, everybody knows everybody. So when you're on an island, it's even closer. Um, so, you know, here comes Curtis Linville into town with a new outboard motor that he didn't have yesterday. <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs> and then here comes this tourist saying, somebody ripped the motor off my dinghy. Um, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to track down the perpetrator. You know, you know that's true. I uh, grew up in a small town, and people watched out for each other in a good way. But if anyone was up to no good, people <laughs> people knew about that, too, and... You know, your reputation was worth taking care of, not to mention that you just couldn't get away with stuff if you had to. So, you know, everyone knew who the troublemakers were. And there's that kind of accountability, I think, can be very beneficial. I think so, too. I mean, I remember down in Black Point, which is a little island in the Bahamas, one day school was over and this child rides past us on a bicycle very close to us. I didn't think it was all that dangerous, but a Bahamian lady grabbed that child up, you know, and read him the riot act. You know, you do not ride that fast, that close to people. And uh, we thought that's pretty doggone good, you know. <laughs> well, hey, do you have any parting words of advice for people that might want to try cruising? How could they taste it, get involved without going out and buying a boat and dropping a lot of money? Um, what should people do if they're interested? Again, read books. And let me back up on that a little bit. Be careful what you read. I ran into a guy that came down to Waterway once, came to Florida, and the next time I talked to him, he's not living aboard. He's living in his house, and he's writing a liveaboard article for a cruising magazine. I said, <laughs> that's a little dubious. <laughs> you're not living aboard, but you're writing about it. There are a lot of people out there that really, really have their beans in one bag. And the name that comes to mind that I have the utmost respect for is a guy by the name of Tom Neal. He um, was a lawyer many years ago and didn't want to play that game and um, the suit and the tie and everything. He wanted to be on a boat, and he has made his living. He now writes for um, Boat U.S. magazine uh, as a technical writer, but I know the guy briefly. I know his wife a little more, and um, he's really 
whatever Tom Neal says is, is the thing. But I would advise people to meet as many cruisers. Go where they're at. Talk to them. They're, they're happy to talk to you. Uh, probably they'll invite you aboard their boat, um, ramble on like I have here for the last almost an hour or whatever it is. Uh, people like to talk about what they're interested in. It's just human nature. But meet as many as you can, talk to them, look at their boats, ask them about the ups and downs of uh, the pros and cons of various types of boats, and uh, be realistic with your own abilities. Then the other thing is, is once you, you know, assuming you have taken sailing lessons and know how to sail, and one of the things is, is people are scared of bigger boats, and it, actually it's easier to sail a bigger boat than it is a little one with a few exceptions here and there. Little ones tip over pretty easy. Big ones, <laughs> pretty solid. Mm. Our boat weighed 22 tons. You know, you weren't going to push that over with a little breeze. But then when you're ready, uh, pick a boat that you think you would like and charter it in the Bahamas, down in the Virgin Islands, uh, wherever. Uh, for first-timers, I would say the Virgins are easier to sail because it's a lot of deep water. Uh, we're in the Bahamas. Uh, you might want to think about a catamaran. If you're not real good with charts and uh, things of that nature, but go try it for a week or 10 days or whatever, a bare boat charter. But now, remember, they're not going to let you have this boat. You know, they're not going to give you a quarter of a million dollar yacht just because you say, well, yeah, I've sailed a lap streak, streak dinghy on Grand Lake in Colorado. Right. <laughs> I mean, you got to kind of have um, a resume built up by then, and that's kind of hard to come by. But maybe people that you can get to take you out, uh, show you the ropes, uh, whatever it takes. Just be aware that it's mostly if you if you really want to do something in this life, you know, you can do it. It sounds like what you're saying here is that if you want to do it, go find people that are doing it. Um, hang out with these people, learn, grow. You need to have a little bit of fix it yourself of an attitude and some uh, some self reliance, I, I guess. And if you if you want to, you can make it happen. You got to have a lot of self reliance. Um, you don't have to be the best mechanic in the world, but, you know, you got to, I said, know your boat, you know. the I found it very advantageous for me personally because that's just the way I think to buy an older boat and spend about a year, year and a half refitting it before I, I took off in it so that I knew a good chunk of that boat. Uh, there's always things that uh, you have to study up on, uh, but there's a way around everything. But take a hard look at what you want for a boat. We didn't want a camp. That was number one rule. We always thought we wanted a captain's berth that was fore and aft. You know how waves are bent around a point, just like optics bend them, where the wind's holding you one way, but the, uh, the waves are hitting you on the side. That center line berth does not work well. <laughs> that's the that's the worst part of the ride, huh? That's what happened down in the Virgins when we chartered that. That's one thing we found out. We do not want a center line berth. We want one that's a thwart ship because it'll let it rock me to sleep instead of throw me out of bed. <laughs> Throwing you out of bed. Well, Jim, those are a lot of great thoughts. You've told us some amazing stories and given us a really good insight into what cruising is like and it makes me jealous. I've not been able to do this yet to go cruising, but what a neat experience you had. 
No, we both agree, Curtis. It's one of the neatest things we've ever did in our married life of 47 years. You know, the we both would encourage anybody to do it, you know. And my wife's not a real adventurous person. She's much more conservative than I am. And um, so people ought to consider that. But your wife, Kay, would say it was worth it. It was a good ride. Oh, yeah. She'd tell you that in a heartbeat. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Jim. And for all of our listeners out there, this has been another Adventure Sports Podcast. Until the next show, get out there and have some fun. Hey, will you help us get the word out about the podcast? All you have to do is tell your friends to go to the Adventure Sports Podcast and give us a listen. Also, go to iTunes, rate us there, subscribe, and review. Thank you very much, and thank you today for listening to the show.